Well, we've looked in these weeks at how there's a time for where we stole the sermon series um, title from the scripture itself, from the ancient text of Ecclesiastes 3. There's a time for, we've been looking at a time to think about what matters most, to ponder the important, a time to grow old, a time to work, a time to understand the seasons of life and to embrace the season that we're in, uh, a time to be wise. We looked at that last week and this morning, uh, a time to be satisfied. And isn't dissatisfaction just a thing, man, just a pervasive, seemingly permanent thing among people? I just, I'm just dissatisfied. Uh, a couple, man and wife, um, were both 65 years old, and they went to the beach to celebrate their retirement. He 55, she 65. They're both retiring at the beach. They're walking along, and they notice a little candlestick type of thing in the sand. So they walk to it, and they pick it up, they pick it up and dust it off, and out pops a genie and the genie tells them both it says I will grant you one we one wish each and the wife goes first a man deferred to the lady of course and she says I want a cabana I want a cabana at the beach and the the genie apparently they say this your wish is my command so the genie poof just like that and uh, she sees a cabana over there and it's got like palm trees and just a nice um, layer of food, just gourmet food and waiters. She's going to have waiters to serve her food at her cabana at the beach. And the man looks and he surveys uh, the women in probably their bathing suits on the beach. And he said, well, here's my wish. I want a wife that's 30 years younger. And the genie said, your wish is my command. And poof, immediately he's an 95 year old man. We're just all uh, so dissatisfied. Don't we want something else? Don't we want what we don't have? Matt and Lisa, let's call them. There's no genie in this story, so it's not far-fetched. In fact, it's awfully close to home. Matt and Lisa will call them. They're stand out back of their yard, and they're surveying the landscape of their new house, and they're, they've just figured out as they surveyed where they're going to put the swing set this is their first home that they've owned, and they're about to have their first baby in three months. For over four years, they lived in a crammed-in apartment, and they were able to save incrementally and slowly and purposely. They were able to save up enough to put a down payment on this two-bedroom bargain home in a neighborhood they liked. But it was a house that, it was our house. They liked it, but they, they knew it needed some work, and they thought, yeah, slowly over time, we'll be able to fix this house up. The dark wood paneled den needed to be transformed to a bright, cheery uh, nursery, and Matt would be able to do that in just a few short months. It was Friday night, and they had an invitation, a dinner invitation. Isn't that fun? They were about to connect with friends they hadn't seen since college. A female voice directs them to their friend's house, and they drive into the neighborhood, and they notice that the homes are nicer, the landscape is, it, it's good. It's manicured, carefully manicured lawns and they pull in and after initial countertops and all those you know the viking range and they go outside and notice cobblestone on the patio and furniture that probably wasn't purchased like matt and lisa at a garage sale and they had a few hours with their friends that they haven't seen from college. Good times. And they drive home and they get into their neighborhood, pull up in their driveway at their house and just feel poor. I want to ask you this morning, what happens? How can you go from feeling 
deep gratitude to subtle resentment in three hours? I want to offer you an answer. I want to offer you an answer, if you will, from Ecclesiastes, overarching thematically from Ecclesiastes. One word answer is awareness. Awareness. But awareness, just being aware of what you have and what you don't, what you need, what you might not need. These are catalogs. Uh, they've come to our home in the last two weeks. And they bring a couple of, raises a couple of uh, questions. Number one, how are there any trees left in the world? This is just a couple of weeks of the catalogs that come to our home. Secondly, these things, if you know, they multiply like rabbits. They're just everywhere. I don't even really check the mail. We just get a lot of catalogs. And I, I look at these things and it raises my awareness that I need to go to some amazing places, that I need to have better homes and gardens. In fact, I need to do better with smoothies and fruit juices and guns and gardens and, and quilting. I don't, I don't quilt. Susan doesn't quilt, but we get the catalog. Uh, apparently, I need to put some pottery in my barn. I don't even have a barn. But these catalogs, they raise an awareness and they dangle out in front of me. And that's just the snail mail stuff, right? That's the stuff where they cut down trees that half of us don't even look at. But we're online and there are phrases that pop up when you're looking at things, when you're feeling that sense of dissatisfaction. It might be something you need, but it's probably just something you want. And here are the phrases. I'll put them up one at a time. You might also like. Secondly, related to items you viewed. How do they know this? Bugging me, creeping me. Third, also bought dot, dot, dot. And that's similar to this. It's cousin frequently bought together. How do they know? How do they know? And they're dangling this in front of you and drawing you in. And have you noticed that we live in a world where everything needs to be upgraded? Young people, listen to me for a second. Once upon a time, people use things until they broke and you guess guess what if something broke everything's upgraded phones devices fridges diamond rings cars how everything gets upgraded and we're in such a hurry for the sleeker model but, but people used to use things until they break and guess what when they broke you know what they would do once upon a time they would fix them yeah and if you couldn't fix them you would improvise or my mama used to say make do which sometimes meant go hungry or have duct tape and fix it. But can you, can you believe that? But we live in this where things are dangled in front of us. And we're, it's like, can you be satisfied? When you're so aware of the trips you need to take and the houses you need to juice and the pottery you need to barn and on and on satisfied you when you get something they're already they know you they know me when you get something they know what else you're gonna need because that ain't gonna satisfy but what do they tell you satisfaction guaranteed maybe the biggest lie from the pit of modern advertisement satisfaction guaranteed because you're not gonna be satisfied in fact this is probably the phrase if you look at the world under the sun dissatisfaction guaranteed I'm actually offering it as a realistic view. You're not created to be satisfied 
in this world. Dissatisfaction guaranteed. Now, before we talk about how there is a time to be satisfied, before we talk about this virtue that's missing in our world, this virtue of contentment, I do want to be clear with this, um, that not all discontentment is bad. Okay, let's, let's put this, uh, let's put it out there and then we'll push it to the side a little bit, but keep this in mind. Not all discontentment is bad. There's hum- something called a holy discontent. Have you ever thought about the, the great solutions to some of the world's big problems have come from someone being discontent? And they've said, they probably slammed a table and said, that is enough. This can't happen any longer. And clean water has gone to places in the world that need clean water. And jobs have come to places that negated economic development that, w- that do what Jeremiah said that we ought to do as we walk in God's love. We ought to seek peace and prosperity for the city. Uh, things have been tackled. Homelessness and poverty and things have been tackled because somebody has been discontent. So there is a holy discontent and we, we need it. We need to operate with a sense of these things we got to do better. And in your life, you need a sense of holy discontent. Now, just like anger is good and you can, the Bible doesn't say don't be angry. It says be angry and sin not. There's a, there is an anger. We talked a little bit about that from Proverbs, from Ecclesiastes 6 last week. But similarly, there's a a really bad kind of discontent, which is where we're going to camp out today. But there is this holy and healthy discontent. If your career is in a cul-de-sac and you can do something about it, you probably shouldn't be content with it. There's probably action that you should take. If there's a toxic relationship, I mean, that's all over Instagram, so I don't need to tell you that. But like, you know, if there's a toxic relationship, you need to, that's like the most popular thing on Instagram, get out of the toxic relationship. But so many of us can't get out of the toxic relationship. But like, be discontent properly. But what I want to talk to you about today is this world that we live in where things are dangled in front of us and it just seems like nobody is really that content. So I want us to go to a place Uh, in the scripture Ecclesiastes chapter 6 and verse 9 Ecclesiastes 6 9 and it says the following better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite this also is vanity and a striving after the wind keep it up if you would Gina on the screen Better is the sight. What, what is he saying? Now, notice if you were here last week or able to tune in online, you notice that Solomon does a lot of compare and contrast. It's a, it's a significant part of all the wisdom literature. But he, he says, uh, you know, last week, remember, you know, better uh, the rebuke of the wise than the song of, from the fool. Uh, better to go into the house of mourning than the house of feasting. Better is the day of death and the day of birth. We unpack that, explain what it actually means. Uh, better is than precious ointment. Better than, better than, better than. So he, he picks up with that theme. He stays with that theme. And he says this, better is the sight of the eyes than the wondering of the appetite. So if you're a note taker, this will help you. Write this down. Write sight of the eyes and write, this is what you have. Sight of the eyes is what you have. Wondering of the appetite is what you don't have. What you have is better than what you don't have. Well, no, it ain't, preacher. Hear me out. Got a little bit more left in this sermon. Hear me out. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wondering of the appetite. You have an appetite. This is one of the faulty, uh, neglected areas of wisdom um, that we possess in life. Think about uh, an appetite. Have you ever eaten more than you needed to eat? Faster than you needed to eat it? 
and then you, you, you go uh, or you say to someone, you're like, man, I am not going to eat again. Now, the reference is probably for the rest of the day, but like you're hurting so much, you're like, I ain't, I ain't ever eating again. Whew, I'm just, I'm never. And here's what you do. I don't have camera at your house, but I know. You're in front of the refrigerator three hours later, staring at some food, thinking about what's next. Now, you're still hurting, but you're thinking. Now, here's the thing. I'm not making fun of us, but like that is us because we have an appetite. You can knock back Mama Hamels for lunch, and a couple hours later, you're looking at a snack in the office because you have an appetite. Philippians 3, 19 says, their God is their appetite. So that's okay. Like if you're in your backyard looking at squirrels and birds like I was doing earlier, like it's a good thing to know, like it's tranquil to notice squirrels and birds. And what are they doing? Their, their God is their appetite. I mean, God bless squirrels and birds. I'm glad we have them, but they're just, they're just eating. They're just moving back and they're eating and they're looking for food and they're living their life, but they're just, they're, they're eating. Their, their, their God, if you will, is their appetite. And I think Solomon is saying here, Paul was saying in Philippians 3, like, is that, is that who you want to be? Inference, you have a soul. And while you do live with appetites, you have a soul and you, you need God to be your God and not to let your appetite, your, the next thing that you want shouldn't lead you to just follow what you want consistently. So appetite is that in you, the wanting. And now here is the, the translation of this, better is the side of the eyes and the wondering of the appetite. That word appetite here is the same word for soul in the Hebrew. We'll put it up. Nephish is um, how you say that in the Hebrew. And that, um, it has some synonyms, but it's your soul. And in the Bible, um, this may not surprise you, but in the Bible, the soul is a big deal. But it's also kind of a big deal if you think about it. When you put a little kid to bed at night, you teach him a prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Comforting prayer for children in the dark. You pray that. And if someone does die in the dark, then we say, may God rest his soul. I had some soul food not too long ago in Atlanta. Best food I've ever had. There's soul music. Um, Think of Ray Charles and Otis Redding and James Brown. There's the queen of soul. We want love. We'll go on sites like soulmate.com. There's a universal distress signal uh, known as SOS, which stands for uh, save our souls. And Jesus would say, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? And soul's a really important thing in the Bible. It's a really important thing. and kind of like it is the thing because it's who you are. It's, a, it's the confluency of your will and your mind and your emotions and your, even your physical body is included in that because you have an appetite and your physical appetite parallels your spiritual one, that soulish one. And when the Bible talks about soul, you know, it talks about hungry, thirsty, empty, lonely. Hungry, angry, empty. What do you notice a theme there? Hungry, thirsty, empty, lonely. You need to be filled. You need to be filled. So never, never in the Holy Scripture does it say to anybody, you know, forget your desires. Downplay your desires. And maybe some of you heard that earlier, but that's not what the Scripture teaches. It says redirect your desires. You have desires. In fact, what did Jesus say? Blessed is the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. 
The power of fasting, we won't get into it. I neglected it in the 930, but the power of fasting, you can see how it mirrors that. When you abstain, when you withhold, you're, you're, you're directing, redirecting a physical appetite, but there should be a spiritual par- parallel, a sense of a need of dependence on God. So this soul is who you are. It's really important. Look what Hebrews 6.19 would say about it. In a world filled with so much uncertainty, it would say that we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the intersectionary behind the curtain. You need certainty in life. There's so much mystery in there. In fact, in this sixth chapter of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is addressing three things. He's really addressing, in the first several verses, he's addressing wealth without enjoyment and then he's addressing work without satisfaction and then he's addressing questions without answers but we'll learn later there's questions seemingly without answers but we all live in that world we all live in that world where it just doesn't seem like our deepest questions have a have a satisfactory answer to them so let's back up in the balance of our time let's back up from ecclesiastes 6 and then we're going to spring forward uh, when we begin to close but uh, let's back up just for uh, two chapters to ecclesiastes chapter 4 open bible you can have it on your lap or you can look with us here and let me let me quickly uh, go to jeremiah 6 real quick on the soul this is what the lord says stand at the crossroads and look ask for the ancient paths ask where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls for the one who's dissatisfied but notice the stubborn, the stubborn spirit. Anybody raise a strong-willed child? Anybody a strong-willed child? Would God call you a strong-willed child? You know he's speaking to you. You've heard his well. You know what he wants you to do. You know what he wants you to do next. But you are so you will not walk in it. And the key is in the walking. Remember last week we talked about wisdom. There's knowledge, understanding, wisdom. And wisdom is when you take what you know and take what you understand and skillfully apply it. And that's the breakdown. And I referred to Paul Johnson's book, The Intellectuals, tons of smart people who were thinkers, who had millions of followers, had moral breakdown in their lives because they knew a lot of smart things, but they didn't know how to skillfully apply it to their lives. And that's, that's the breakdown. Listen to me, you have to walk in it. I left the gym Friday night, marriage workshop, really good. Lee Smith, my friend and counselor friend who counsels us, and we have a partnership with him. And he did a great job talking about building intimacy in marriage. But I was talking to a couple of guys afterwards. I was like, man, it don't matter unless we go home and do it. We got to walk in it. Aren't you glad I do, babe? Thank you very much. Um, but you got to walk in it for it, to be, for it to be real. We have to do it. And that's the, that's the soul. The soul needs that. Uh, we need rest. We need rest. Think about fatigue. You, you get tired. You have fatigue and you can't pinpoint it. And you think you need a vacation. Then you take a vacation, but it, it wasn't a vacation. You think you need eight, eight hours and you get like seven and a half or eight and a half, but it, it didn't matter because there's something there. And that, that's just proof that you got a soul because you arrested, man. You went to that brochure sanctioned resort, but you're not rested because there's something deeper happening. There's a lack of tranquility because, well, let's go back. Ecclesiastes 4. Here's the source. All right. Come on, Solomon. Then I saw all that all toil and skill in work you know somebody does their job really well Well, i'm blessed to have some friends man they're good at what they do they are good and i call out when they're in the area i need some if i call them they are good at what they do proud of them as a friend solomon was the man but even that that comes from a man's envy all that the work and achievement hold on the work and achievement like it all stems from 
envy of a neighbor? Really? Is that a cynical view or a realistic view? How much of what we do is in comparison to how other people are doing? It's a man's envy. Now, circle that word envy. I don't have it highlighted, but envy is a word that Solomon would use in Proverbs 14.30. A lot of you know this. Envy does something. Envy rots the bones. Whoa, that's strong language. Nothing, uh, we're about to see some real strong language in a second. But uh, that's pretty strong language. Envy rots the bones. Like a, an empty soul can have a physical effect, a detrimental physical effect on your body. And doctors in the house can just stand up and tell us that. They can tell us, oh, so-and-so came to see me for this. But here's the way the stress related to it. And the stress uh, d- didn't make it better ever. It made it a whole lot worse. There's this soul that we have, and it'll, envy will rot your bones. You're not quiet. There's not a quietness to you, a tranquility and a peace when you're always comparing yourself with other people. Take the typical American family that's doing well. They'll, they'll go on a vacation, a family of four, a mom and a dad and two teenagers, and they get to this resort, and, man, it's all-inclusive, and it's all so good, but they start getting... Now, they probably went on the vacation to rest their souls, to find satisfaction in relationship with one another, to be away from us and to be on their vacation and to have fun. But they're irritable with each other. And the wife walks into the room. They're about to go to dinner in 20 minutes. And he's watching sports. He always watches sports back home. Why is he watching sports now? Why isn't he with the family? She gets very huffy. And he gets miffed because she's huffy. And 20 minutes later, they head out to a Japanese-themed restaurant And miffed and huffy walk together with their two teenage kids, silent and surly. And they walk into this restaurant and miffs thinking, how much is this going to cost me? And surly's like, this is lame. But you know what they're going to do? This happy family on vacation? You know what they're going to do? They're going to take a picture. Do you see my sermon notes? They're going to take a picture. They're going to take a picture and then you and I are going to think, man, they're so happy. Oh, and they're at that place and like, I don't have money to go on vacation. I got to go to Tupelo and see Elvis's birthplace. And I got to tell my wife and it's not going to be that big a deal. And they're down in the Bahamas and like, and they're so happy. You don't know they're miffed and huffy and silent and surly because they have an unrest And they thought some of that. They thought the resort. They thought the trip. They thought being together. They thought the Japanese-themed restaurant would fill that, would satiate that hunger and thirst. But there's more to it. And so we're left like Solomon looking and going, what's up? And envy will rot your bones. Verse 5. I told you there'd be some strong language. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Not literally cannibalism here. It is a metaphor, but he's using strong language. Good communicators, effective teachers, uh, they know they have to shock and provoke at times. And Solomon uses this shocking language. Uh, some translations say it, it, you'll come to your ruin. But he uses this, the first part of this, the folding of his hands. The fool folds his hands. He uses that quite a bit. You'll see that in Proverbs. And the fool, the fool will uh, you know, take, a, take something from the bowl and put it in his mouth and it won't even go back again. The fool, like the hands that get lazy, the, the folding of the hands. And this is in verse 5 where he's like, you know, we all do things just to compete with each other. We, we're not just competing. We're determining our worth based on how other people are doing. It's exhausting. I'm done. I'm done with it. By the way, cynicism can get you very close to despair. And this is a verse of despair. This is like, I'm just, I'm so exhausted. About, I'm giving up. Verse 6. Better is a handful of quietness. Here we go again with the contrast. Better is a handful of quietness. That's translated 
tranquility or peace than two handfuls of toil and striving after the wind. Doesn't that just rub you the wrong way? I would, I mean, when is two, when is, when is one better than two? You always want more. If someone came and gave a, a large gift to the church and said, hey, I've got this big check and hey, I've got another one, you want one or two, like a wise person would say, I'll take two. I mean, don't you always want more if it's kind of a good thing? But he's saying here, better is that handful, just one of quiet. It's better to have peace, just a little. It's better to have less with peace than to have more with toil and striving, a lack of peace. And some of you can say, like, you have not, you have not arrived at Solomon's level, but you can give a testimony today. You can stand up and go, man, it's true. It's true. I talk to some people that are my age, and they'll, we'll be driving along, and they'll look back and go, you remember when we lived there, and we were just it was so, we were young and in love, and we didn't have much, but we had each other. And now they got so much, and they don't want each other. No joking here. I'm being serious. Too many of those stories. Be careful. Um, verse 7 and 8. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother. He's talking about inheritance here. Yet there's no end to all of his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks. And isn't it crazy? You can, you can live life and never ask the right questions. And here's one. For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of this enjoyment, this pleasure? Like, who am I doing this for? And can I just say to everybody in the house today, you want to get this one right. You want to get this. For, for whom am I doing this for? Hey, why are you going to college? You know, I want to get good grade. Why do you want to get good grade? Well, I want, to, I, want to get, I want to graduate. Why do you want to graduate? I want to get a job. Why do you want to get a job? I want to get a house. I want to get a family. I want to get, why do you want to get a house? Why do you want to get a family? Why are you doing this? For whom are you doing this for? And we have these relationships, and they're wonderful gifts, but no relationship is meant to be a savior. No relationship is meant to be the ultimate aim for you. I've got a beautiful brunette, my wife of 25 years. She's on the front row, and I tell people often she makes a wonderful spouse but a terrible savior. I need to live with her. I need to live with her in an understanding way and continue to be a student of her. I need to cherish her. I need to live my life sacrificially for her, putting her good above my own. But she's not my savior. Ultimately, I don't live for her. Some of us idolize our biological families like you're you have little kids and you do whatever they say whatever they say you do whatever and that's not the way it should be in these relationships we got to ask us for whom am i tolling so we backed up a little bit from ecclesiastes 6 9 better is the sight of the eyes and the wandering of the appetite we backed up a little bit to get some perspective on envy and competitiveness and looking around us and now i want us to move forward quickly to first timothy chapter 6 where this verse is so powerful on contentment. I know a lot of you church people, you've heard it, but I want to get past your defenses if I could. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Now we just have a little bit left. Would you say that out loud to make sure I know that you're awake? Let's say it together. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Let's say it louder. The people at home will hear us. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness is what? If you're a note taker, just say this. Godliness is being godlike. Tell me about God. Here's what I don't want you to ever miss. God is love. God is love. Don't, you can get a lot wrong. Don't get that one wrong. God is love. And to be godly, to pursue godliness is to be godlike. So you and I need to be marked more and more by love. 
I walked out of a meeting not long ago. It was very confusing. There were different opinions and ideas thrown around. And I just remember thinking, we, we just really need to make sure we're loving each other. Now, truth matters. I'm not saying it isn't, so don't email me about truth. I, I'm, I'm with you. Truth, I'm with you. But we got to get love right. We got to get truth right. We got to get love right. But in this situation, love needed to be paramount. There needed to be some folks who reminded, we need to remind each other of the primacy of love. First Timothy 1, the goal of our instruction is love. The goal of our instruction is love, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. So God is love. Now, godliness, you can read some of the Bible out of context, particularly some passages of the old, and you can, um, I love walking with people through some of these uh, problem passages or ideas or whatever, but you, you, you look at some of this and you think godliness is like a separate, kind of a weird holiness kind of thing, where to be godly is like, you know, if I'm going to be godly, then I don't need to be contaminated by them. Like I'm clean and they're unclean. I know you got some of that in the Bible, but you need to take it in context. But know this too, because the, the, it moves forward. The moral arc moves forward. And Jesus came and says, I'm changing that. And here's what I'm telling you. You need to go toward the mess. And love, I'm going to touch the untouchable. And listen, I want you to join with me. And when I touch the untouchable, you're not going to get unclean. They're going to get healed. You won't get the disease they'll get healed. And when we walk with Jesus and we pursue godliness, now I know there's 1 John 2, 15, 17, James chapter 1, it talks about it, it promotes holiness and being separate and stuff like that, but not a separateness, not a weird separateness, not a we're better than them. Let, let me just say that again. It's very clear in Jesus. Jesus goes to the mess. He touches the untouchables and we're sitting around in our holy huddles worrying about our godliness like we're going to get contaminated. And Jesus is like, no, you're not going to get the disease. They're going to get healed. And make sure you're a part of a church. Make sure you're a part of a community of faith that's marching in that direction. We won't always get it wrong we fail but that's godliness godliness is becoming like god and he's saying that true soul satisfaction is godliness and that's a consistent day-to-day -day walk what happens if i fail preacher what happens if i fall short well join the club in fact look around you and all of y'all i think are looking at me right now i'm in on it like i'm a leader here but i'm i'm leading the charge i fail every day and when you fail, there's two wonderful gifts that he gives us. Confession and repentance. Confession and repentance. I agree with God. Not that I got caught. I agree with God that it grieves him and that it's not good for my soul. And then I repent. I change. I change. And those are the gifts that he gives us. I want to say that some of you don't give up on those gifts. Use those gifts. Those are mighty in your arsenal to be spiritually healthy and whole. Godliness with contentment. Contentment, simply put, is I have enough. Does that rub you the wrong way? I have enough. How many of you have food and clothing? How many of you have breakfast? How many of you going to have lunch? How many of you going to... Contentments, I have enough. And it says great gain. The Greek word there is like mega. It's our word mega. Like it's big. This is big. You want to live a life. <laughs> you want to live life. You want to get it right. Oh, let me tell you, godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, he would say this. He addresses two groups of people, if you will. Uh, one in 1 Timothy 6, 7. I don't have it on the screen, but I'm going to quote it, and I'm not going to lie to you. Um, this is what it says. He says, to warn those who want to get rich. Listen to every word. Warn, warn those who want to get rich that they'll fall into a temptation, into a trap, into many foolish and harmful desires that will plunge them into ruin and destruction. Strong language. No eating of the flesh, but it's strong language. Warn those who want to get rich. In other words, those who, who they make it their aim. That I'm going to get rich. It doesn't matter. There's, there's, like God's got a kingdom. I throw a little money in the plate at church. But I've got a kingdom and I'm going to, I, let me tell you what I'm doing. I'm going to get rich. I'm going to give to the church. I'm going to be nice to people. I'm going to be very altruistic. 
which we don't often do, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to get rich. Warn those people. They will never be satisfied. They will never find contentment because they want to get rich. They will fall into a temptation and to a trap. Anybody in a trap? Anybody had something dangle before you? Maybe it came in a catalog. Maybe they told you you bought this and you need this and you just kept going and it tempted you and now you're in a trap. You don't know how to get out. And warn those who want to get rich that a temptation and a trap and a many foolish and hurtful desires that will plunge them into destruction and ruin. Very strong language because we need the warning. But then he says to those, y'all knew that was going to happen. But then he says, he says, warn those who want to get rich. But then he says, command those who are rich. You hear that? Command those who are rich. Now it's very important that everybody hears this. Because you think after hearing that, that he may say, command those who are rich not to be rich. Doesn't say that. It says, command those who are rich to not be proud and to not put their trust in the uncertainty of riches. But to do good, to be rich, to be generous and willing to share. To do good, to be rich, to be generous, and be willing to share. Now, why? Two questions. Why would you need to tell the rich to do good? Why? Any, any answers? If this is a small group, I'd pause and just awkward long silence until somebody answered. But why do you have to command the rich to do good? I'll tell you. Because they're busy. Because we're busy. By the way, who's rich? This is the second question. Who's rich? Questions. Some of you know where I'm going. I'm just trying to do it differently than I did last time. Who's rich? Question, if, uh, have you ever received a package from Amazon at your front door and you don't even know what's in it? Do you have a car? Do you have a car and you, uh, which is kind of the question anyway, but do you have a car like, and it's got its own house? Like you can park that car in its own house. It's like a shaded house that might even have like some windows and like you can push a button and your car goes into its house, into its shaded house that can survive a Mississippi. Is that you? Anybody answer yes to one or both of those? You could be rich. And I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. Um, if we have a guest here. You, whoever invited you may need to explain this to you. But like I'm rich. And I think you are too. Command those who are rich to do good. Again, back to my other question. Why do busy people, why do rich people need to be told? Because you can get so busy with your riches. Look at what I'm doing. Look at what I have. Look at where I'm going. And there's little time to invest in the church. There's little time to be with the ones you love. There's little time to think about God's kingdom. There's little time for you. You're so busy. There's so little time for you to invest in washing feet. Why would you wash feet with all your riches? And so you have to be commanded, those who are rich. And guess what? That's my job, to preach the word. And that means sometimes leaning on us to warn you if you want to get rich and to command you if you are rich. Now, Paul would say, to give perspective, and I'm getting close to closing, Paul would say in, in explaining this on contentment, godliness with contentment is great gain. He would say that you brought nothing into this world. So think about your birthday and your birthday suit. And you came into this world, man, you had nothing, but you were so adored. You were so cherished. Your, your naked little body was celebrated. You discovered America. And uh, you were just celebrated. And somewhere along the way, you and I, we started growing and wearing clothes. And then we started thinking it was about to close. And we, somewhere along the way, we bought into this lie that what we have, if we get stuff, we'll be celebrated. 
which will never, ever give you rest for your soul. He said, you brought nothing as worth, and you'll take nothing out of it. No matter what you have, you'll take nothing out of this. So then you, gotta, you really got to get the question that Solomon got to, which is what am I going to leave behind? So can I ask you today, as Lauren and the team start coming up, uh, we'll begin to draw this thing to a close, so stay with me. I want to ask you, what are you leaving behind? What are you leaving behind? Hey, Paul, he wrote this. You brought nothing in this world. Godliness with contentment is great gain. You brought nothing in this world. You'll take nothing out. Be satisfied. If you have food and clothing, be satisfied with that. So what did Paul leave behind? I'm asking you to think about what you left behind, but what did Paul leave behind? Let me give you a couple thoughts. He left behind this, letters that shaped Western civilization for 2,000 years. He also left behind theology that would disrupt an empire. Now, I'll never be that lofty. You won't be that lofty, but we all need to think about what we leave behind. And here's what he would say. We'll close with this. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly Solomon spent his days looking at life and boy, he lived it. Man, he lived it. Another level. But he would tell you as Paul would, as Jesus would, man, you can go for this and go for this and go for this and you can buy into something and you think it's life, but it's not life. So here's a contrast. I would say, dropping some Solomon and Paul, true life is better than false life. I have any more time to think about that. I'd be more flowery with it. But true life is better than a false life. You can live your whole life not understanding a true life and this emptiness of your soul. So as you stand, I want to actually close. I said I was going to close with that. I want to close with this. So stand with me. Um, Jesus would say this about the soul. He would say, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you I will give you rest in your soul. And the writer, Dallas Willard, I'm going to go there again. Dallas Willard said this. He said, when Jesus said that, he said that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I don't have time to explain that to anybody. But when he said that, we think yoke is easy. Yoke is easy. Jesus is easy. Yeah. The question, the answer to satisfaction is to live with Jesus and everything is easy. And here's what Dallas Willard would say, just so brilliant. He would say that the word easy is not a word of circumstance. It's a word of the soul. He follows that up with this. If the aim of life is easy circumstances your life will become unmanageably unbearably hard but if the aim of life is easy soul you can withstand virtually any difficult circumstance that's what Jesus gives that's what he gives let me pray Father thanks for this morning thanks for creating us and within us there's intentions and thoughts and ideas there's memories There's a volitional will. There's a mind that yearns for the future and a mind that regrets the past or celebrates it. There's a soul. And it's a soul that needs to be filled because we're hungry and thirsty and lonely and empty. And God, I pray that we would be people who come to God. As Solomon closed out Ecclesiastes, remember the Creator. Fear Him. And God, we want to remember You. We want to bring You to mind. We want to live for You. We want to sit quietly at your feet and learn and not be stubborn and do things our own way.
God, would you bless these tithes and offerings? And Lord, thank, thank you for the people here. And I pray they would be ministered to even as they leave, as we sing, as we think about what we can take away. Would you minister to us to take steps today, even have conversations about these great truths from your sacred text. In Jesus we pray, amen.